Hey, welcome guys. Welcome, glad you're here. Hi, I'm Chris, it's nice to meet you. Good to see you. Are you sufficiently caffeinated this morning? That was a weak response, I'm a little concerned. Um, I'm gonna pray for us. How about we'll start with inviting God into the place, right? Let's pray, okay. Father, um, I thank you for, uh, gosh, a beautiful morning. I thank you that, uh, that you've given us this time, this space, this margin to open your book, your beautiful, amazing story um, together. God, thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for the story that you've laid out, but the story that you're also laying out in all of our lives. We know that you are involved and you intervene and you provide and we thank you for that. And so today, God, I pray that whatever it is that you want us each to understand about you, about your big story, about our little story and how it fits in, I, sh- I just pray that you show us that um, today. Thank you so much um, for this time, for this place. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Lesson four. You guys are rock stars. Way to go, guys. Um, lesson four. We are moving through the book of Ruth Um, If you have been with us before, you know um, that we are in chapter two. So if you have your Bible, you wanna open it up to Ruth chapter two. Um, That's where we're gonna be today. We're gonna look at verses one through 13. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to take a look back. You know, um, you guys could probably all recite this at this point, but we are looking at the story, for those of you who haven't been with us the whole time, we're looking at the story of one family. One family that was plucked out of a time period, a 400-year-ish time period of the judges, And it's recorded in the book of Judges as the darkest days. And and this family um, and their story resides within that time period. And so we pulled them out and we found out that they are from Bethlehem and Judah and that's God's promised land to his people. And they've been dwelling there and living there among God's people, but a famine came. And we don't know exactly why or how that that occurred. But we do know that God promises um, over and over to his people that they're gonna suffer consequences of their actions, of their sinful actions. And sometimes that comes like in the form of a famine. So we don't really know why, but we know that it existed, right? And so we know this little family, right? What'd they do? They took off, didn't they? I mean, Elimelech was our main dude and we heard about him in chapter one, verse one. And he took his family to this place, Moab. And what you know is that Moab was the place God never intended his people to dwell, right? And Elimelech took it into his own hands to try to save his family. And I understand that, you know, we understand that, right? But we know that God's land was the land of promise. Even though there was a famine there, we knew that God was present there and he dwells with his people there, right? And so he took them and took them to Moab and and they found food and they did the thing and they were planning on just staying for a hot minute and what'd they do? Stayed for 10 years, didn't they? It got comfortable, And so he and his family stayed for 10 years. The two sons got wives, right? They got these awesome Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. And then terrible things happen to their family once again, right? Elimelech dies, the two sons die. And now we have this character, Naomi, who who is, is not only a widow, but she's also lost everything, her family, everything. And she's in this foreign land with these two daughters-in-law. Well, you know that last week um, they started the journey, right? Orpah went back, but Ruth did what? She stayed with Naomi, right? She was faithful to Naomi. She said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. And she stayed with her. 
And so that's where we pick up today. We pick up with the arrival. They have arrived back after this 10-year absence of this family, back into Bethlehem, God's land, God's people, to be received, okay? And if you'll remember at the end of chapter one, what was happening at the time? Do you remember? Barley harvest. For those of us here in Flower Mound, Texas, 2021, we're like, what the heck does that even mean, right? Well, it had great significance and we're gonna go through that in just a minute. But before we get started, I wanted to share with you, um, I just wanted to to share with you something I was thinking about. This weekend, you know, I do my homework with you just the same. Like I get mad at the person who wrote it because that's a dumb question. I don't understand it. Same. I find typos too. Trust me, find them. Um, I was doing my homework this week and uh, this weekend was cool because my daughter came home from college and uh, she's a Razorback. Anybody? Woo pig? Come on now. I know that you Aggies are not happy about that. Um, she came home for the football game, but what she ended up doing is just like laying on the couch all weekend. She wasn't feeling good. And you know, if you're a mama or if you have a mama's heart toward people, like people that you love that God's put in your life to mama over, right? Then when she came home, I'm like, I'm glad she's going to the football game. But then when she sold her ticket and said, I'm not feeling great, I'm just gonna hang out on the couch with you all day. I'm like, even better. You know, I got to be mommy again, right? And so my 19 year old's all snuggled into the, into the couch and she's got a pillow and she's laying like this. And I looked at her and I'm like, you know what? She loved this, I'm sure. You, you need Woofy right now. And she goes, oh, mom, what are you even talking about? She does not talk like that. I just, it's funny to say that. And she's like, what are you talking about? Well, you know what Woofy is in our house. You probably have had a Woofy. It may be named something different. But Woofy was this tiny little stuffed bunny that she carried around from the age of like one till the finally when she got rid of it at age 16. No, I'm kidding. She's gonna kill me for that. No, I don't remember how long, but there, was, there, there came a moment, trust me, that she decided it was time to let go of Woofy. Well, I looked at her and I thought about Woofy and it was this little bunny and she'd just keep him really close. And especially when she wasn't feeling good, right? She just hung on to that thing, like had this clenched fist on Woofy. I always laugh because I'm like, poor Woofy, that looks very uncomfortable. Well, you know what I did as a mom. Okay, so he, she's like a year and a half. Okay, I really am taking us off track here, but here, you'll stay with me. So she had this woofy. And so I knew what you guys know, which is woofy cannot be lost, right? Woofy was essential to survival. And so what did the good mom that I am? I went back to the store and I bought like five more woofies, amen? I'm like, I give me every woofy you got. Call every store, I want every woofy. So I had these backup woofies, okay? I'm saying if my mom was here, she'd be like, yes, I had one at her house. I had one at my mother-in-law's house. So I backup woofies. Well, in my house, I only had two woofies, okay? And I would trade them out in the wash, you know, to try to trick Maya because I'm so stealthy. And, and you know what happened, right? She carries around Woofy like this. One day she realizes, hey, there's another Woofy in the wash. And so what happened from that moment on? Two fists, Woofy was everywhere. Double fisting Woofy everywhere it went. And I'm like, this is not how I saw this playing out. And so for quite a while, like we double fisted Woofy and, and it was just funny because I'd tell her to do things and it was like nothing, she couldn't do anything because she had Woofy, death grip on Woofy. And so no hands couldn't do anything except carry around Woofy until the day came when she decided with a little push from me that it was time to let go. And I'll never forget, like I was sitting on the couch and she walks in with her double fisting clenched Woofy fists and she comes up to me and she just drops them in my lap. And we both cried, you know? And she said, hide Woofy, hide him. And I did, I, I, in fact, he's still hidden to this day. I even told her, I go, maybe I'll bring him to Bible study. And she's like, don't ever let me see him again. Cause I think she thinks she'll take him back. But you know what I thought about when I was thinking through this whole deal? I know you're like, where are you going? Here's the thing. 
I thought about that death grip on Woofie. And, and I thought about, as we went through this section where we meet Boaz, the worthy man, you know, I thought about what are those things in life that we just hold like this? You know, what are the things in life that we just hold so tightly that nothing else has a chance to even get through and we fumble around all the other things in life because we're too busy holding onto our woofies, you know? And then, as God does, he brought this uh, little passage that came up in this devotional that I love, the Blue Book, and it's by Jim Branch. And I read it from time to time, not every day, just sometimes I pick it up and for some reason this day I picked it up. And this is what I read. You ready? There are only two ways to live. We either live with clenched fists or with open hands. You can't have them both. Clenched fists are a refusal, a refusal to let go, a refusal to trust, a refusal to give up control. Anybody? Don't raise your hand, it'd be awkward. And unfortunately, in the spiritual life, clenched fists can also keep you from being able to receive anything from God. Only empty hands can receive. Therefore, we must let go of whatever our hands are full of before we can ever expect to receive any of the fullness or the life that God wants to give us. Cool, right? I love when he does stuff like that, just show off God stuff, you know? What are you holding on to? You know, I think we see a story today and I love that Boaz enters the scene because we're gonna see a different looking faith, a different looking open-handed faith than Ruth. But, but you're gonna see it, I think. I think you're gonna agree. There are things that both of them are gonna encounter from this point on where you see that it's like, oh, that could only be God and that could only happen if they were living this open-handed life an open-handed faith. Well, today we're gonna look at those two amazing examples, Ruth and Boaz. And the way we're gonna do this in verses one through 13 is we're gonna start with kind of covering the nuts and bolts. We're gonna talk about the gleaning and the law. And you're all like, and that is nap time. Okay, no, stay with me. It could be quite interesting, promise. But we gotta talk about what this whole gleaning thing is. I mean, there's a whole chapter about it, right? So let's understand it. The second thing we're gonna talk about is we're gonna look at Boaz, the worthy man. We're gonna look at four like character traits of his godliness and really examine those things, okay? And then the last thing we're gonna do, we're gonna look at God's providential possibilities. You see, over and over in this chapter, and you may have already seen it, God is providentially in his sovereignty stepping in and intervening on behalf of these people in this story. And we're gonna watch it happen, okay? So, gleaning, Boaz, providence. All right, open your Bible if you would. Chapter two, I'm going to read verses one through 13. You probably already have it memorized because you've been looking at it all week. But what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read it. So if you wanna follow along, cool, just listen. Remember, it's a story. And so just try to listen to it as a story being told, okay? And remember, we're starting out with the beginning of the barley harvest. Important to note, okay? So verse one goes like this. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of, of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Pause. Make note here, this author is giving us this information, but no one in the story really knows. Like, it's not like Ruth is like, oh, that's the guy, I'm gonna go to his field, okay? So be clear here that we're identifying Boaz as part of the clan of Elimelech, but Ruth does not know this, okay? So keep that in mind as you listen to the rest of the story. So the second part, verse two, and Ruth, the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose eyes I shall in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, "Go, my daughter." 
So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, Lord, be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Verse five, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi, with, with Naomi from the country of Moab. Can I pause? Like, come on, how many times have we got to say Moab, right? Do you note that? Like, it's like the author's like over and over, the Moabite from Moab, who is a Moabite, who is from Moab, you know, right? It's like, we got to pay attention because he wants us to know very clearly she is different, right? Okay, unpause. Well, I lost my place because I'm just rambling. Okay, um, verse six. Let's, let's start there. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, she's a young Moabite who came from Naomi to the country of Moab, verse seven. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for, the short, for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in any other fields or leave this one, but keep close to my young women, let your eyes be on my field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, you go to the vessels and you drink what the young men have drawn. Verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. And she said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13, and then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Ah, oh, there's so much stuff there. You know, like we could spend like weeks there. It's deep and big and rich. It's the first conversation, the first time we hear Boaz's voice, the first time Ruth speaks to him. It's powerful, right? Well, I think it's important for us to understand this whole gleaning thing, the whole talk there. Um, remember, we, we talked about this last week. God is going to meet some needs here. And what we know Naomi and Ruth, the two primary needs that they have, the tangible needs that they have are they need food and they need family, okay? In this culture, the way the world works, in their re, you know, coming back to Bethlehem, that's what they need. And so this is where we're gonna start seeing God answer those needs, okay? So he's gonna intervene. Gleaning, um, the word gleaning. So you covered a little bit of it in your homework, but um, basically what it means is like when, um, okay, th think about this way. So it, outside of Bethlehem, there's these fields and they're like community fields, okay? So Boaz is just like one dude in the midst of this big community of fields. So he's just one little plot, okay? So there's a lot of them, all right? Does that make a little more sense? Now, what, what we know is that gleaning happens after the reaping, after the harvesting. So he's a landowner, he's wealthy, you know? He's got these people out there doing their thing and they're harvesting right? But what happens is when they're harvesting, things drop, 
okay? Sometimes big, big, big parts of, of the wheat or whatever just kind of fall away and they're instructed by God, which we'll talk about in a minute, by law to leave it, to not go back and get it. Okay, and we'll know why in just a minute. And so the gleaning is God's provision. It's God saying, I know that there are gonna be people that are less than, that are less fortunate, that are poor, that are widows, that are fatherless, that are foreigners, and they have nothing. And so this is God's way of providing for those people. So he tells these people that own these plots, the corners you leave and let the gleanings fall. And then these people will come around and totally legally will gather up this food for their family. Okay. And then what happens is um, sometimes when the grain is left standing, I mentioned before, they can take that as well. Okay. So it's like this really detailed, specific law that God put in place to provide. I love that. You know, we see his character in this place. Well, I mentioned it's a law. It's a mosaic law. This is back when uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago where Moses talked to God, right? And God gave him like this giant list of all these things for God's people. This is how you're gonna live because God knew the heart of man, right? And so he knew that there was things he was gonna have to put in place that would take care of people that man would not have thought of as on, on their own. And remember, okay, like remember this? You remember, what was it like? Lesson two, do you remember that cycle from Judges? Do you remember that, anybody? There was this cycle. If you haven't gone and done that, go back to lesson two. There was a cycle of sin that was happening during this time of the judges, like 400 years of them doing the same thing over and over where the people would like disobey God and they'd go off and do things that were right in their eyes, amen? Which we know right now that ain't right. They would go do their thing. They would get into trouble. God would step in, give them a judge to help rescue them out of this disaster. And the judge would live, he would help, then he would die and they'd do the same thing all over again, over and over. Okay, so we know that. So what I wonder is how many people were abiding by this law? How many people were doing this? Were being obedient to what God set up? We meet Boaz and we know that he was. Listen, just to remind you, Leviticus 19 Verses nine through 10 go like this. This was God talking to Moses, telling him, this is what you're gonna do. This is what the the law is gonna be, okay? He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time and pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so that's God voice, right? Very specific. Then he says it again. Remember I told you Deuteronomy was a lot of repetitive, God saying it again and again and again. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 through 22, he says this. When you were harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. And when you beat the olives on your tree, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And this is why I command you to do this. So God had purpose in this law, right? Okay, so we know what gleaning is. We know what the law is. Now, think about this. Gleaning was really hard work, okay? It wasn't just, it wasn't easy. It don't think for one minute that these fatherless, widowy, you know, foreigners got off easy and didn't have to do the hard work. I mean, you even read, I mean, I think we even mentioned that, that um, Ruth is there from early morning to whenever it is with one short rest, right? She's working hard. 
And I, I love that because there's no assumption there that, that this is going to be just a cakewalk. You know, it's honestly, it's probably embarrassing. It probably is. Because you got a bunch of people that are working out, legitimately working in the field. That's like their job. It's what they do. And then you got these little extras that come around. And, and I keep going back to um, the way it was in those days, in the times of the judges. Like, was there compassion? I, I don't know. How did they treat the, the Moabite from Moab, who was from Moabite, who was from Moab? You know, remember we see that over and over. She looked different. She sounded different. They probably treated her differently. And so we have to remember, like, this was not easy, okay? I thought, found it interesting when you look into the whole system that God put in place, the gleaning system, um, it, was not re, it was not easy for the poor. So it required work and effort. It was not just a handout. They were not gonna improve their status by picking up um, these scraps, but they could survive. And so that's where we are. We are in survival. Well, Boaz arrives on the scene. And so now we know what's happening, right? Boaz arrives on the scene and everything changes. Boaz, the worthy man, verse one, tells us that's what he's considered. What are some things we remember about Boaz? Like from that passage, like what do you remember about him? A couple words about Boaz. He was worthy, yeah. Noble. He was kind, yeah. Respected, would you say, based on his interaction with his people that worked for him? Respected. What do you think his faith was like? I mean, yeah, strong, right? Because he was praying for this, this Moabite woman from Moab. I'm gonna say it all the time now, right? I mean, he immediately he interacts with this woman and the first thing he does is bless her, right? And then you see the way he greets his people. So like, I love that we get a little glimpse into his character here in this one passage, um, couple things about Boaz. Uh, we know that he was a relative of Elimelech. Now we don't know exactly, was he a brother? Was he a cousin? We don't know exactly, but we know that he falls in that clan, which is gonna come to play later, right? Whenever we start talking about um, of what's expected of people to take care of, uh, of Elimelech's offspring, of his daughter-in-law. Um, Boaz, the name actually means in him is strength. In him is strength. It's not used again in the Bible anywhere. No one else is named Boaz. We know um, that he is King David's great-grandfather. How about that? If you did Psalms with us, you know that um, David wrote the majority of those things, right? The Psalms, we see David's voice, and then we see his faith, and we see his legacy, and we know that it probably came from a legacy of faith, probably from his grandfather, I like to think that. Great grandfather. Um, this is interesting. I did not know this about him, that he was either the son, maybe the grandson, maybe the great grandson. Sometimes um, genealogies in the Bible skip generations. So we don't always know exactly, but we do know that he was in the line um, of Rahab. Anybody remember Rahab? Uh, you've probably heard of her, even if you can't like conjure up her image. Um, you see, she was um, another non-Jewish woman back in the Old Testament, she was a Canaanite and she was a former prostitute. And you may remember her when you think about the story of Jericho. You see, she and her family were the only survivors of that conquest because she hid the Jewish spies and helped them escape. And so God showed her favor and she and her family escaped. So imagine this, okay? I, I found this so interesting to think about. Imagine the stories that Boaz, Boaz must have heard 
growing up. Imagine having a mother or grandmother or great-grandmother who had been a foreigner and a harlot, but yet she was grafted into the olive tree of Israel by the grace of God. Imagine that. You think it molded Boaz into the man that he is. I love that it probably affected the way Boaz viewed Ruth when she was gleaning in his field. Other men may have simply seen a foreign woman scrounging for food like a parasite. You know, I suspect they did, but not Boaz. Boaz saw something familiar and dear in this woman and he um, that had left her family and her nation and her gods to embrace Naomi, her nation and her God. And we see that in his words, don't we? It seems like Boaz was uniquely prepared by God for Ruth and Ruth for Boaz. Cool, right? Like, wow, that the, the brokenness and the histories of our lives can, can feed into the legacy of faith that we have now. That's huge. So just remember your story matters to the future stories in your family and your generations to come. Well, He is also considered a foreshadowing of Christ. And you may have heard that. We're gonna look at that more in the coming um, lessons because we're gonna look at this term, kinsman redeemer, and that comes next week. And uh, to see that parallel with what Christ would ultimately be for us is, is, it's fascinating. And I think you're gonna love that, but just kind of keep that tucked away. Um, Before we move on though, I I wanna share with you, I I feel like um, we can never underestimate how different Boaz was. And so I saw four different ways that I felt like he shows these key marks of godliness. So we understand he's called the worthy man. I feel like there's four real obvious ways that he fits that profile, okay? So four things about Boaz that, that prove his godliness, that show him as a worthy man. The first is this. We talked about it a little bit a minute ago. He's a follower of God. There's no question, right? He's a follower of God. But here's what's cool. He's a follower of God in words, but also in his actions and his priorities. I love that the very first encounter he has with this Moabite woman from Moab is he talks about God's protective wings over her and then he prays over her, you know? He said, the Lord repay. He said, the Lord will reward. He hopes that the Lord rewards to be given to, to, to Ruth. And then he talks about the wings that she has come to take refuge under, right? He references the Lord. He doesn't cut him out of his speech. He's not trying to be a cool guy. But instead his faith is like infiltrating every part of his life, I think. Boaz's response, the most important thing to me about being a follower of God, I love this, is Boaz's response to Ruth is to point to God, not himself. Did you see that? Like when he talks about, when she's like thanking him, I can't believe you found favor in my eye. I mean, I found favor in your eyes and she's bowing down to him. The first thing he does is what? He points to God, not himself. Man, if we could walk out of here like that, right? More of you, less of me, right? That's Boaz. Well, follower of God, um, I love, if you go look at um, Psalm, in the Psalms, I mentioned David writes over and over. In Psalm 57, one through three, you know, we see David's words and I thought, man, this is, this is a legacy of faith right here because now we know where it came from. David says these words when he's hiding in a cave, okay? He thinks he's about to be killed. And this is what David writes. See if you recognize any of these words. Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me. For in you, I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I love that, right? We see, we see evidence of this legacy of faith that started with Boaz. The second thing about Boaz that was so different, I think, was that he was a pursuer. He was a pursuer. 
first words, first actions toward Ruth. He didn't just see her out in the field and then hang around. You know, he went and took action and spoke to her immediately. I think about in your homework, you covered a couple of examples where Jesus pursues over and over in the New Testament, guys, over and over. You can look at at, uh, Luke 18, he pursues a blind man beside the road. And you can look at John 4, he pursues a Samaritan woman at a well. In John 5, he pursues a lame man laying by the healing pools. I mean, I could go on and on. You see, Jesus wasn't a, hey, I mean, you know, come, come to my throne and sit and let me just teach. No, Jesus went and did and pursued. And so did Boaz. I love that. I love that character trait about him. The third character trait about Boaz was that he was a protector provider. I put a slash. I was like, I can't decide which word. Protector provider. Here's why. When you look at verse nine, I'm gonna reread it to remind you. He says this, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. He's saying this to Ruth. Have I not charged the young men to touch you, to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, you go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Listen, he is taking care of her needs. He is warning her about the danger. And he's saying in this moment, like, do not leave this place because you are protected here. Do not leave this place. He's adamant about it. And then you, you talked about it in your homework and you're gonna talk about it in your small group. There's this whole thing about the water. It was so upside down that he said, you go and you let them draw the water for you. I mean, that was huge because he was a provider, even before he knew her, because he was a man of God and he was doing what was right. Well, the fourth thing I saw about Boaz was that he was a man of integrity. He was a man of integrity, Leviticus 19, nine through 10 reminds us um, about that, right? Like he knew the law. That's the one we read earlier. He knew what the law was. He didn't have to probably execute the law because remember we lived in the times of the judges and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so he could have easily been greedy, could have easily overworked his people. He could have easily just ignored all that, but no, he's a man of integrity. You're gonna see that unfold even more later. Like in chapter four, you're gonna see um, how, the kinsman redeemer enters the picture and Boaz is honest about where he falls in line. And he's also honest about how the land works and all these things that like a dishonest man could have easily just kind of hidden, but not Boaz. So I love that, right? Follower of God, pursuer, protector, provider, and a man of integrity. I suspect that Boaz was one of those guys in life, and you may know some Boazes, that you look at him and you're like, That could only be God, could only be God, right? There's no way, you can't just naturally be this guy. I suspect that his choices looked super different, right? I suspect that his priorities were way upside down for that culture, I suspect. I suspect that his faith made other people watch closely. Maybe maybe watch closely to watch and look for him to fall. You know, we do that, don't we? Or maybe they were inspired or impacted in some way by his faith. I'm not sure. I think that he lived an open-handed life. I think that he was receiving from God and listening to God in ways that we see unfold in this story that I bet you there were a hundred other stories just like this that didn't end the way this one does with the happily ever after because of the way he lived. Well, he was different and God's gonna use that, you know, because he was available Well, God's providential possibilities. Listen, there's a handful of words and we're gonna move quickly um, in this passage that I I want you to see that were not um, coincidence or chance or karma, okay? They were God 
They were God taking this moment and intentionally intervening and getting involved and making this story different. And he does it still, like he's the same. Like I think one of the best things about God, here's what it is, ready? You can quote me on this. He never changes. Like why do we think that the same God that did this for them isn't doing this in the lives today that we encounter? Why do we, why do we think he doesn't involve himself? Are we smarter than them? I don't think so. Um, God intervenes. He creates possibilities and we don't even see it sometimes. We don't even call it his hand. But in this story, we see it and we're gonna call it what it is. First thing I want you to see in verse three, go back to verse three and look at this phrase. She happened to come to the part of the land belonging to Boaz. She happened to come to the part of the land that belonged to Boaz. I mentioned before, it's probably a large community field. Okay, so there was this one little section that was Boaz's. And that's where she landed. Um, I love that the author used the word happened. Don't misunderstand though. He wasn't saying that, oh, it just so goes a coincidence. He wasn't saying that. He was actually doing that in a way to draw our attention to the word, to draw our attention to the action for us to realize that uh, just so happens that she ends up in this one spot and then follows it with this. In verse four, behold, you see that? In verse four, we see that it says, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Remember the fields are outside of Bethlehem. Boaz is the big wealthy landowner, right? How often is he out in the field? I don't know if you're a professional um, gleaner. I don't, you may know, I, don't, I have no idea. I suspect he didn't hang out in the field with his people all the time, just my suspicion. So the fact that behold, Boaz, Boaz's timing is perfect because God's timing is perfect. Your next lesson, your next homework lesson, you're gonna read in the introduction. I wrote a little thing about a moment where um, I saw God's hand perfectly providentially step into my life and no one can tell me it was a coincidence. And I think you probably have some of those moments in your life as well, right? Where, where God steps in. And sometimes we don't call it that, right? Because it's scary to call. It's easier to say coincidence. It's easier to say that it's luck. It's easier to say that it's just karma, uh, it's God. No. Coincidences are God's way of choosing to be anonymous. I heard that one time. I'm like, that's great. Love that. And so in this moment, you know, we're seeing this providential God step in to, she happens to be in the right field and he happens to be coming from Bethlehem at the exact right time. Well, there's one other phrase I want you to look at and we see it three different times. Um, verse two, verse 10 and verse 13. Okay. And we see it. It says, in, in whose eyes I find favor in whose eyes I find favor. Remember when Ruth said that? So in the beginning, she has this, this hope, this goal. Her goal is to end up working in a field where she does find favor in someone's eyes. And what that phrase actually means, it's repeated over and over and over in the Bible. I have three pages of it in different, in different places where it is repeated in the Bible. And that means gratitude for someone that they would take notice or grant privileges or take care. Okay, gratitude because someone would take notice, grant privileges or take care. If you go to the great theologian Google, look it up, you're gonna see that phrase over and over in God's word because people are constantly seeking to find favor. We are doing it today, aren't we? All the time, over and over. Lots of times in Genesis, lots of times in Numbers. One of my favorites was in Esther. Esther's the only other book of the Bible named after a woman, remember? 
And in Esther chapter seven, verse three, this is Esther to the king when she says, then it says, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. You see, her hope was to have found favor in the eyes of the king so that then she could do God's work. Later, we see in Luke chapter one, verse 30, we see um, this, this happened, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Great words, right? And so we understand what this means. And so for her to say that in this time, for her to understand that she is finding favor with a person who has the power to save her life is huge. And it's not a coincidence. It's the hand of God. I love how Ruth lives this open-handed life. I love that she gives us that example, right? And so does Boaz. Listen, I do not know. Uh, I don't know what your woofy is. I don't know what you're clinging to, what you're holding on to, but we all are, right? And so we, are, we have the privilege of watching this story unfold of two people who are, are desperate at times, right? And then sometimes they're in a great place, you know? But both times they're living like this with God. As I thought through this, I thought, um, am I living a life of refusal or am I living a life willing to receive what he has for me? Yeah, Boaz didn't see Ruth coming, right? But Ruth didn't see Boaz coming either. And I think that's what God has planned for all of us. There's so many things he wants to offer us, but we are so busy doing this, living like this, we miss it. Boaz, a follower of God, a pursuer, a protector, provider, a man of integrity. Ruth, one who found favor. You know, I love that. Well, we get to be Boaz and we get to be Ruth too. You realize that? Like, think about that for just a minute. We get to be grace givers, don't we? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, if you have him indwelling in your heart, you have an opportunity, man. You get to be Boaz. But there are a lot of times that we are Ruth too, right? Where we are in need, we are empty and we have all these places in our lives where we just feel like, Lord, I cannot fix this anymore. Please fix it. We get to be both. Well, it's gonna be a real weird ending. In fact, I said this last night. I'm like, I may not even do this in the morning, but I did and I'm going to. As I was finishing up my homework this week, I started thinking, um, I started thinking about those places in God's word where we get the, uh, uh, the opportunity to be Boaz. We get to be the grace givers, you know, where we get to be Ruth, where we get to have our hands open and receive because we are so needy and there's nothing we can do, right? And I came across this, this story a couple years ago, right before COVID slammed all of us um, and shut everything down. We did a little devotional here at Rock Point. It was right for Lent and I got to write it and it was really a cool privilege. And I, I don't even know why I had this out. Like it's literally like, what is this? It's, I don't know why, but I flipped it open to day 30 and this is what I found. And I thought, man, this is what we need today. And so I'm gonna close with this, okay? In Luke 9, there's a retelling of a story that you're very familiar with, whether you've ever opened your Bible before or not. It's the loaves and fishes deal, okay? That's where Jesus is speaking to all the masses of people, right? And the disciples are there and everybody's tired and they're worn out. All the people are just overcoming and they're hungry and Jesus is sitting on the hill, chill like he is. And he, uh, you know, they bring up the, this uh, loaves and fishes and it's barely enough to feed like one person. And, and Jesus is basically like, watch me be Jesus. You know, he didn't say that, but he's about to feed these masses of people, right? But here's what's interesting about that story. 
is I think I always thought it was about the people getting fed by Jesus. But listen in, I don't think it's totally about that. Listen, listen to this. Luke 9 verse 13 says this, but he said to them, that's Jesus, you give them something to eat. That's the disciples. Do you remember that? Do you remember that he said, you give them something to eat? I didn't, I didn't remember that. You've probably heard that story, the amazing miracle of the loaves and fishes in Luke 9. It happened right at the time when Jesus' ministry was creating a buzz, okay? And the masses were growing. And on this day, the hungry crowds of thousands were following him. And Jesus had a plan to feed him. And what was the plan, you ask? The disciples were the plan. You see, um, I've always thought this story was about the masses and the miracle, but now I see that it was all about his disciples. This time had come and he was readying them for when sharing the good news would be solely in their hands. Have you experienced the work of Jesus through the hands of one of his modern day disciples? I'm gonna guess yes, because you were in a church doing a Bible study. Somebody somewhere introduced you to Jesus. Consider this, okay? Christ has no body now on this earth but yours. Yours are the only hands with which he can do his work. Yours are the only feet with which he can go about this world. Yours are the only eyes through which his compassion can shine forth upon a troubled world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. And that's Teresa of Avila. Have you ever really considered yourself as his hands, his feet, his eyes, his body? Well, just like the disciples, when they shared the miracle lunch, we are the plan. You see, we get to be Boaz. We get to be the disciples. We get to be the plan and to feed the masses, right? But sometimes we're the hungry, right? We're needy. We're like Ruth. Sometimes our hands are open because we need him. But I just want to ask you today, man, like where is God prompting you to open up, let go of your woofie, and receive from him. I don't know. Where, where is that? Maybe it's time you're the Boaz to a hurting world. Maybe it's time that you look to seek his favor and put your Ruth hat on. I'm not sure, but I do know this, that this story has something to tell us about what God wants us to know about us. And so I hope you see yourself in it. I'm gonna pray and then um, we're gonna move on. Ready? Okay. God, we love you. Um, we thank you. Thank you for um, the Boaz and, and the Ruth parts of our lives. We thank you that you recognize that we can relate to both. And Lord, we pray that we can drop our woofies and have open hands when it comes to receiving from you. What do you want from us? We wanna be available. And Father, forgive us for those times that we're not. Forgive us for the times that we hold on to the things that do not matter, that tell us that that's our comfort, that tell us that that's our security, but it is not because you are the God who never changes and you love us, and you want what's best for us, and you see us, all of us, all the time. Thank you, God. Thank you for your son, and we thank you for this time. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.